On this episode, we talk about Coinbase going public, Shopify firing everyone, and is diversification for idiots? Welcome to Think at Heart. That was good. Good start. Oh, man. That'll get people's attention, eh? Firing everybody, diversification for idiots. Jeez. You can tell I'm going squirrely with the new lockdown. I'm just getting aggressive. There's nothing else to do. There's nowhere to take it. When I started running again, just because I, I was bored. How's that going? Yeah, nice. Actually, it's a nice, nice way to start my morning. Thanks for asking. Oh, anyway, welcome to episode 15. Think at Heart. I'm Scott Goodfellow. This is Ben Hart, Hart Investment Group, National Bank uh, Financial. Find us on all major social media platforms. Okay, let's get going. So, what have you been doing? What have you been doing under this lockdown? We're like two weeks in. Kids are off for this mock uh, spring break. Now we find out they're not going back to school. Are you going nuts yet? Well, which I don't know if we discussed before, but my middle daughter, uh, they had a COVID scare in her class. So she's been home for, I guess this will be three weeks now. And my youngest decided we kept her home too. So Brooklyn and Georgia have been home for for three weeks. Uh, looking like another three weeks of school. It's not ideal, but we're going to make it work. I had them out uh, tonight. Uh, Lucas and I went for a run and the girls biked. So got to keep moving. Yeah, I know. We got the stay at home order, but we got to get, we got to, we got to stay active, right? We got to find a way to stay active, which kind of, kind of brings us to the first point is like, even though all these things are, are, are closed and which should be having a negative effect on the economy. You know, I read a couple of little stats here that I'm going to read out like retail sales up almost 10% sporting goods sales up almost 25% clothing up 18.5%. Not to mention the housing market is insane in most areas of North America, like where we live in Ottawa, like places are going now. I heard something somewhere went, for like 300,000 over ask last week. We live in a suburb that typically, you know, the average sale price is 500,000 for a four bedroom house. And now we're well, we're getting, we're definitely over a million for, for these areas. It just seems like we should be in a slowdown and people should be conserving, but people are just spending money. It's insane. Tell me about that. Why is that happening, Ben? Yeah, so I think uh, I think about it in I guess in multiple ways. Obviously, each city, each country is different. You know, Ottawa, as we've talked about before, it's a it's a government slash tech heavy city. So you haven't had a lot of people lose their jobs in in Ottawa, and you've also had the people the unemployed. Some were making more than they used to make when they were working. So I think that's that's something that we're seeing there. There are is also limited supply in everything from houses to you, you were talking about bikes before there's limited supply of everything for I, I guess two reasons I think houses because not everybody wants to sell and list and move in COVID times so I think you got constrained supply that's going to open up and then the other things like if you're buying sporting goods or things like that you're having a it kind of got kind of a delay in inventory coming in because a lot of the manufacturing plants have been slow and closed. And you got retailers, we'll say, with the clothes and shoes, you know, they're having massive discount sales trying to clear out their inventory because they got to bring in more inventory. So I think you got a, a number of things happening at the same time. 
um, which I think we talked a little bit about too just before we got on here. You've started to see uh, numbers start to slow down. So all those stimulus checks, which would have been completely spent last year in the U.S., you're not seeing everyone spend that whole amount of money. You actually saw a slowdown in, in retail sales and particularly a slowdown in, in women's uh, women's wear, which tends to be kind of a leading indicator. They're the one that first tends to either accelerate or decelerate. And so that's a signal to pay attention to. So I think you got constrained supply, which is partially why you got this inflation number. I know we're going to talk about inflation, but you got kind of constrained supply. And as a result of that, things things are, are not not as readily available as before. Yeah, like I, I try to find a bike, you know, anywhere, ne- never mind anywhere in the city. I'm looking online and and trying to find a bicycle and uh, cannot find one anywhere. Right? It doesn't matter what you want to pay. Sorry, if you want to go super high and you want to pay $15,000 for a bike, you could probably get one. But if you, would, you just want to go middle of the road, forget it, right? And I think that goes to what you were saying about constrained supply. It's insane to me. I do think it's temporary. I do think as yeah, as Ontario, we're, I think we're at the end here. And I, when I say the end, I mean, I think we're at the end of the lockdown phase. You know, we got almost 10 million vaccines, or at least people have got close to 10 million vaccination, at least the first round of shots in Canada. Ontario is trying this last lockdown I think on the other side of this, we probably have a different environment and where the economy and market kind of all constrained at the same time a year, just over a year ago, and everyone was panicked. And now I think everyone's kind of panicked what's going to happen on the other side. I think we probably have a, a slowing economy, which people kind of initially think that you know, things accelerate when they go, when things open up again. I'm not so sure. Who knows, Ben? Who knows what we'll, what's in store for us here? Okay, well, let's move on to something more exciting. The time we've all been waiting for. Coinbase going public. Now, it did not IPO. It was a direct listing. Let's start off by just kind of explaining what the differences are. Yeah, so an IPO, would, I mean, they're, they're quite similar from the perspective that they come to market in, in a similar format. Like there's a price issued and that's kind of the price that it gets listed at or valued at in day one and then it's sold. So an IPO, which is the traditional route, would be one where the f- listing firm would hire a bunch of investment bankers to go up and drum up business. They sell a portion of their assets the existing shareholders sell a portion of their business to the investment banks. Investment banks, in turn, value the business, and they sell it to their their retail clients or institutional clients. We'll say, so it's a it's a different format from the perspective that the existing shareholders kind of are locked up to a, a selling a chunk of their business to the investment banks, and then they come to market with a pricing. The investment banks would make their six eight points. And then it would come to market from a traditional way. Where a direct listing, where there's enough activity, you don't really need the roadshows. You don't really need the investment banks kind of drumming up the business. So, of course, you, you go directly to market. You have similar rules and regulations around how you need to qualify. But what it does give is it gives the individual owners the ability to liquidate their positions whenever they want. So, you know, what happens when you do an IPO, like say you're a venture capitalist, 
and you know you're going to sell 10% of your shares, the investment bank gets to decide what you sell them at. So they fix the share price where, you know, if they come to market like Coinbase did yesterday and the institutional owners say, okay, we're going to liquidate 10% on the first day and they waited, they got an extra 40, 50% upside had they gone through the IPO route. They get to liquidate into the market whenever they want. I see. I see. Well, I mean, it certainly has been the most anticipated uh, release of the year. And did it meet expectations? I guess I would look at it as it met expectations from the perspective that it opened up with a lot of interest, a lot of demand. We had crypto running up into it, like Bitcoin, Dogecoin, like your favorites, like all these ran, ran up into the IPO. So I think it met expectations from that perspective. I don't think it met the most bullish expectations was they'd hoped that it could get to 100 billion market cap. I think that's the the optimists, the, the maximalists that think that crypto is going to take over the world. So I think it met expectations. It's actually hung in quite well, which uh, one of the things that I did yesterday, which I think we talked about yesterday, but not in real time, was I did reduce some exposure to Bitcoin and reallocate some of those proceeds to the ARCF, which is Kathy Wood's uh, fintech fund. So, And Kathy, we saw, who's uh, obviously quite prominent in the tech industry, did in fact actually liquidate some positions in Tesla and bought Coinbase yesterday. So I think from uh, the perspective of how it's done, it's actually fared pretty well hung in uh, better than I think some people thought it would have been just a one day and then we'd see a massive sell-off. And so we haven't seen that yet. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it was it was projected that it was going to go to 100 billion and people, the naysayers are saying, oh, look, it didn't get, it didn't reach 100 billion. It didn't reach 100. But yeah, but it's still a massive opening and just the size of it alone would put it in the S&P as it is now at like 89 or something like that. So I mean, that's a massive, like that rarely happens. Is that not true? Oh, for sure. I mean, the one thing that they're going to have, like a lot of these tech companies, like Tesla, for example, like Tesla wasn't in the S&P 500 because you actually need to be a profitable company for multiple quarters. Like you have to prove that history in order to get added to the S&P. Coinbase is a profitable company already. Like this is a tech company coming to market that generates revenue, that generates free cash flow, that has a good profit margin. So yeah, it's it's rare that you see something like this happen and trade like it has. So the one thing it did, and it was a bit of a fear coming into this, is it has sucked money out of some of the other names like MicroStrategy and Galaxy. You've seen some pressure on those stocks. I think as people look to maybe de-risk some of their crypto corporate exposure. So you've seen money flow out of those names. And I think it's probably gone into Coinbase. You can't actually see the flows. But as you look, uh, there's been some downside pressure in those names, which I think probably are, are reasonable entries and opportunities if you didn't buy them and you like them. So you've seen some of that happen. Well, we'll probably see more of that happen, right? As there becomes more and more ways to invest in crypto, right? I mean, those dollars will kind of spread out over over all those different vehicles. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see if, if that happens. So I think so. The new head of the SEC, which I think officially gets approved uh, at some point this week or next week. So he's very pro crypto, right? So I think everyone's waiting. There's kind of three 
Bitcoin ETFs that are sitting on his desk technically in the U.S. waiting for approval. And it's highly likely that he gives them the, the rubber stamp. And if he gives them the rubber stamp, I think that's probably that really, as we've talked about before, that opens up that opportunity because right now, 401ks and IRAs and these a lot of the retirement accounts in the U.S. don't have any way to participate in it. And so still the money is controlled, at least the retail money in the U.S. is controlled by individual advisors, right? So if you give them away and uh, they're allowed to do that, you know, that's, that's a huge amount of potential capital to flow. Yeah, for sure. But it'd be interesting to see if people just add to their positions with these new ways to invest in it or they take it out and just kind of spread it over the different vehicles. Yeah, so I think, I think yeah, look, it's a great question, but I think just because we sit where we do and we talk about it and we allocate to it, that's not the norm. And I think it's a hard, we, we, sometimes you get stuck in that thinking, right? You're, we're, we're just in here and we're like, okay, we do it. It makes sense, right? Natural allocation institutions are doing. It's another asset class and we think that it makes sense. But still, as you go across the country and at least in Canada and you read the statistics in the U.S., People aren't allocating to it yet. I think exactly right. I think you and I see it as, well, certainly I do. Maybe you're different, but I just assume everybody knows about it. Everybody's investing in it now. And and I think that's not the case, right? <laughs> just because we just, we just inundate ourselves with it now. But I think you're 100% right. I think we're, it's still super new. Yeah, like I talk to advisors, friends, people, colleagues I know, and we talk about Bitcoin and we have this engaging conversation about it and they, they talk about it and they know it. And then I say, well, what kind of a weighting would you put in a client's portfolio? And they're like, oh, I don't buy it for clients. I only, only buy it for myself. Well, what am I missing about this conversation that we just had? <laughs> and it certainly won't be naming any names, but uh, it's true. So <laughs> Name them right now. <laughs> It'll be good for business. <laughs> Bad for clients. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think that it's still so early and and uh, still so early from the places getting comfortable with it. The one thing that's that I think we've talked about this week, at least off camera, is that Bitcoin this week has been super stable. We've had volatility coming down. You've also had kind of, uh, so Keith from Hedgeye talks about implied volatility, which is another beast altogether. Implied volatility is really high. It tends to, tends to signal that there's a potential upside move still ahead. And so you've had kind of low volatility, high implied volatility. It get kind of a setup that says things are pretty calm right now. And so, you know, I'm wondering what uh, and how that's going to play out. I mean, you pointed out the wedge technical chart there about a week ago. And so it's peaked kind of above that uh, that wedge on the technical pattern. So certainly uh, something there maybe we need to pay attention to. But I think if they turn on those those ETFs in the U.S., it could be interesting. Gold, which I think we've talked about at some point, there's no way for people to invest in gold in the 80s. And so GLD first came to market, which is the gold index, GLD, is that gold went from 400 to 1800 in the matter of about two years. So you got a triple from it. So not saying the same thing is going to happen, but 
if you do get that, where you make it readily available for people and they can start to allocate towards it, it's not unheard of where people start talking about these numbers of a couple hundred thousand dollars a coin. You know, if you get institutional money, if you get everyone start to allocate it, you get the banks say we're taking X percent weighting into our asset allocation models. And I know we'll talk about asset allocation later, but that's that's where you get the pull and, and, the, and the money come in. It'll be interesting to see how it compares to gold, because in that, looking back at that, was there other ways to invest in it? Like, what was there the coin base for, for gold, right? Where people, there's still, there's already billions of dollars invested in it in some way or another, right? And the other factor is to consider, too, that things move 10 times, probably 100 times faster than they did back then. So that that two years to triple maybe six months. Maybe it's not, right? We, we don't know that. But it'll be interesting to see that comparison if that's actually happening. To me, it's it's more of a comparison of the internet than it is to gold. I know people like to compare it to gold, but because where you see those massive spikes in all the companies that, that started, right? So. so, and I think the investor profile is very different too, right? Like, uh, you know, I attended Credit Suisse. They did a gold versus Bitcoin this week and they had a couple of interesting speakers there. And I do think that they're in different worlds presently. You know, I think the worlds will collide. But right now you got gold, which a lot of people want to compare the two. And I think they're completely different. But yeah, gold still, this is still like an institutional type tool. This is kind of the institutions use it. Like that's where you would get allocations right now. It's a different, they can touch it, they can feel it. The people running those monies are still the boomers, still the older generation. They're still running that asset allocation. So they're still buying gold from that perspective. Where you look at the crypto Bitcoiners, like the, the maximalists, you know what they own in their portfolios? Crypto, that's it. They own Bitcoin, they own Dogecoin, they own Litecoin, they own... The 100% crypto allocation in their portfolios. Seems smart right now. Seems like a smart play right now. <laughs> yeah, and I think well, we can cover uh, concentration at another point as we will. <laughs> but like those worlds haven't collided yet. And so you got the kind of the two paradigms there. And, and I think that you and I know from working within an inst- financial institution like their level of understanding of something before they're willing to, to be comfortable with it as, as an allocation needs to be really high. <laughs> That's uh, an understatement. Really high is <laughs> an understatement. Yeah, they're definitely going to be the last ones to the party. <laughs> Let, let's just say that, right? So, which is crazy to me, but, uh, you know, we're still learning here. You know, speaking of, of comparisons, you know, my my favorite comparison is when people compare Bitcoin or crypto to tulips. Yeah. Right? The tulip market. Yeah. yeah. That's insane. You know, it's just, it's not the same at all. You know, they think it's, oh, because it was so speculative or, or whatever, but... I guess those are people that really believe that uh, history repeats itself. And I don't think we're in that camp where I, I don't believe at all that it, the past dictates the future whatsoever, especially in this day and age. The patterns are just so inconsistent. I don't even know how you can make an argument for that. And to compare it to tulips in 2021 is asinine. Yeah, we had, had a good banter there on LinkedIn with a former colleague about that, uh, his comparison. So go check that out if you want. But yeah, I would. Uh, and there's I would no shot agree. that he listens to this. 
he's he still gets his news via smoke signal. <laughs> he still has horse and rider bring him in his uh, annual reports. Yeah, well, listen, lots of the lots of the, the technicians, a lot of the people that have that kind of CFA type of upbringing, and nothing against CFSA, CFAs are brilliant people, but you, you need data, you need the input, like unless you get history, unless you can show me like 30, 40 years of history and back test it, they can't get comfortable with investing in an idea. So I get the comparisons to tulips, and in fact, when I – in the last run-up, before you could actually buy it, before there were futures trading on it, I said there was it was a bubble, and it was a short-term bubble. It's bubbly, for sure, but the different comparison is that a whole financial infrastructure is being built around this, where Tulips was bubbly and there was nothing happening behind the scenes, where all these major companies are building financial infrastructure to do it. You got every central bank in the world trying to figure out how to set up digital currencies. So while their price might be a bit uh, something speculative that you can, you're concerned about, but comparing the two is not, uh, I don't think is, uh, is legit. Okay. Well, that's our uh, weekly uh, <laughs> cheerleader session on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. <laughs> Let's move on. You did mention Kathy Woods briefly there, which moves us on to Shopify, which she actually says is the next Amazon. So, you know, that's yet to be seen. But the interesting thing that happened at Shopify is they parted ways with three of their top executives. And because of that, the stock went up, had a nice little, had a nice little run there. So, it's interesting because, you know, the way, the, the way they paint, they're painting the picture on this is that, you know, it was mutually agreed upon and both sides, you know, all three people that they let go or, or quit or whatever decided it was best for them and for the company, which to me is uh, something more happened there for sure, right? There's no way you lose three of your top executives and something didn't happen there. That being said, you know, it may have been a leadership from the CEO that says, okay, we've hit a bit of a lull here in our, in our talent and our technology because those are two of the roles that, that they're replacing, right? A bit of a plateau and we want to bring some fresh blood in here, which as far as from what I know of, of corporate and company life cycles, you can't have the same group of people developing company for your 10, 20 years and expect new, fresh ideas all the time, right? So I think it's a, I think it's a great move no matter what happened. And the result was obviously the, the stock going up. So why do you think in a situation like that, doesn't it, it point more to turmoil and shouldn't the stock go down? I'm just wondering what you would do too. Like if they told you you're like chief talent officer of this multi-billion dollar company and they tell you you're fired, are you going to issue a nice gentle press release like that or are you going to say something else? Just curious your comments and then then I'll give you my give you my feedback. <laughs> well, if it's me, <laughs> obviously depend a lot of factors there, but yeah, if they just told me to get lost, obviously I wouldn't do that, but I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of factors at play there, it's probably with a lot of dollar signs behind it. So, if that's the case, hey, you know, I'll be happy to do what's best for the company. 
Take your medicine. Yes. And exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's actually, uh, they actually have four now because in September of last year, their chief product officer was uh, resigned, let go, whatever. And Toby took over the job, apparently. So yeah, then, then chief legal officer, chief talent, and chief product. Like the only other thing could have been, I guess, COO and CFO. I mean, those are the only two other C-suites. And that's, uh, I think if you saw the CFO exit at the same time, I'm guessing they probably had to pay them a lot more so that they wouldn't. But you'd be concerned about the financials. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the chief talent officer. So I've I've followed her a little bit, and she was like employee number twenty or something. So like these are people that have been with the company for a long time. So I think your I think your point's valid. I think it's probably a combination of Toby, a combination of the board saying we're in the leadership role right now, and if we're if we continue to be stagnant, we're going to miss out on opportunity that we have here. It's been. You know, I've followed Shopify from the start, and it isn't something that I've participated in. I own it for a couple of clients, but I've come around on it. You know, I saw the first and one of the kind of early pitches. I talked with a venture capitalist about it when they were first coming out. And you know, some of his words were the ones that kept me away from it, saying, you know, their product isn't that unique. They just have uh, good delivery, and they're in a leadership role. And you know, I think they've grown that portion of it. And now I think that they've established this giant network where they control commerce for so many different businesses now. Now that the that they they've established that, now they need to do something truly unique. And that something truly unique is what you're talking about is how do we integrate, how do we come become that DeFi leader? How do we make sure that we can do all of these things, take crypto as payment, like find a way to integrate this into our system and maybe become a bank like and Kathy Wood's been been bang on and she certainly sees the world a lot differently than many people. And so I think she's got some valid points. But you know, Shopify never really thought of fi- as finance and I'd heard rumblings and musings about it from other people, but they've really come a long way. I do think if we get a slowdown that I'm I'm expecting mid year to late year. We see an opportunity to reload and actually buy this position, but certainly Kathy's been been exceptional and her views and takes on on what and how this how this works. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens next. I mean, usually when new leadership comes in, they have a whole new direction, right? So, which is usually exciting. Yeah, look, I mean, I think they probably want to want to pivot that business and be really a finance tilt. Like I think they want probably some of that, like how do we do this? Like how do we bring somebody in that can can sit in both worlds? What's existing finance look like now? What does the new age look like? And how do we how do we get this to, to come together? And how do we be the leader in that space? Yeah. I love to see it when companies do this still on the way up when they're they make changes and they don't wait for that turnaround moment right and they just hold on too long to their talent and their ideas and their vision right and i think that's why you see some of the founders exit when they do too you know on the way up they're like i just this i realized my vision of this company and there's nothing more i can do here and then somebody comes in breathes new life in it and i think too sometimes they're giving that opportunity to the founder to step away from it that's why you often see them come back right and then make other changes because they get to step away from it see what some of that new ideas are coming in and then have 
because they've been away from it, have a fresh new perspective on, on what it could be. And then they come back and contribute in some other way. So I think it's good on them. If that's exactly what they're doing, hopefully that's what they're doing. It's not some sort of scandal. We'll find out it's 2021. It'll be on TMZ or something. What's the Ottawa version of TMZ? <laughs> the Ottawa sun. <laughs> yeah. Does that still exist? Yeah, I think the auto citizen. It does, eh? My neighbors are uh, older, and they still get their paper delivered every day. So I see the guy pull up and throw throw the paper, bounces off the door. It's uh, it's a nice old school moment for for me. I do, day. I do, and maybe I'm I'm kind of old school like that. I do like the idea of a newspaper. Like I used to read it every day too, when that was the only thing. When I was like late teens, early twenties, and I like doing it. You know, I got the Globe and Mail. I got the Wall Street Journal. Like, I got all those things. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm with you. I love the paper. I love the, I love the paper too. Like the Financial Times is like a pink paper. So yeah. I used to get the Saturday Financial Times. It was fun to read. Yes. Yeah, I know. It's great. I kind of miss it. You know, like same thing. I've never been able to move to like a Kindle. You know, I just like regular books, you know. But that being said, I do consume 95% of my information in digital format. Big podcast and audiobook guy because I can do that on while I'm doing other things. But yeah, for sure. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about the roaring twenties, right? And how why are people why are people comparing this time to that time? Yeah, so there definitely is a lot of similarities, both from a financial setup perspective as well as uh, from an income divide perspective. So you had that period of time where everything was getting inflated. You get asset prices. People were spending in excess. Things were growing. Things were overvalued. It looked like everything was perfect. For example, today I listened to the CIO of CalPERS, which is one of the largest pension fund managers in, in the world. There. California teacher's pension. And so their CIO today said, like, this is a nirvana. Like, this is the time you want to be an investor. He actually said, this is nirvana. Like, he's like, almost like this is easy. He had uh, Larry Fink come out today, who's the CEO of Blackstone, right? He said, market's going up. And, you know, we're, you know, we took in another close to trillion dollars of assets. Let's go. Like, yeah. these guys what think can go that wrong? everything's It'll be fine. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> And so a lot of similarities, that's the same thing. Like things were great. People were spending money. Like everything was awesome. Everything was going up. And so I think there's a lot of similarities from that perspective. And so what ends up happening though, is you get, which we've talked about a little bit of these kind of fourth turning, these long tail cycles. This is typically the end of the this euphoric period where things get overinflated and uh, people overspend. From that perspective, if you're a carefree, I don't manage money perspective, just live life and spend and things are going to be great. That's where a lot of the comparables come from. Interesting. And as, as it relates to inflation. So there's different kinds of inflation, different, obviously, angles. And so, you know, I think that you know, if you read consensus, consensus is we're in this next wave of inflation and we should expect everything to go up, prices to go up across the board. And so, you know, I don't think it's a one-way street. I think we're in this kind of transitory period where we're getting inflation in kind of the CPI type bucket things, which is energy, materials. Again, all of these things are constrained because of manufacturing. 
We also have year-over-year numbers are huge because 12 months ago at this time, the world was like, the world was completely locked down. So you're getting these inflationary numbers. And so get these inflationists think that everything's going to go up, up, up forever. And so, so I think that's going to be different than what was in the 20s where you had inflation kind of in everything. At the same time, you had a different demographic set up than we have today. Um, but I do think you probably get asset price inflation, but that doesn't flow into CPI. Like the, the one thing I think we're not going to see through this is we're not going to see wage inflation, or maybe we do, but I'm not sure how. Like unless you have any ideas to tell me how we're going to see wage inflation, I'd be shocked. So you know, as a result of no wage inflation, you're not going to get this kind of middle, lower middle class start to come up, right? The only people that are benefiting is the top income earners and the top asset owners, right? So if you get asset price inflation, which is what the Fed and central banks of the world are targeting, like the top 1% of the world are getting all the benefits because they own all the assets. So if assets go up, houses, boats, uh, art, and the stock market, you're going to get the top 1% go up a lot. And if you get wage deflation, which I think is quite likely as a result of all the technical advancements, is you're going to get sideways to down wage inflation. So you get like that's a that's a nasty cocktail for kind of that fourth turning setup, which is where you get a you get kind of the, the millennials saying, wait a second, we're in this bottom bucket. We don't see any way that we get out of that. We need a pretty material change in life. And so I think that's what's likely is asset price inflation, but deflationary things and everything that would go into CPI. So what's the, is it, that's just inevitable? Like that's going to happen? And what's the way, what's the way out of that? Assuming it's a bad thing. I mean, it is a bad thing. I'm not saying it's not. It absolutely is. But so what? We're, we're too far along to avoid it. I mean, it is happening, right? So, like you said, like just material change from a standpoint of people have to change their habits in order to make that, to jump the gap. Or, you know, is it on government to find a way to bridge the gap through minimal, what is it called? Universal basic income. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think is the remedy to that? If we call it a remedy, I guess. Yeah, I don't know that there's a simple solution to it. I think that you get uprising, and we're seeing that now, like you're seeing that already. I think you're seeing that kind of come through. And this universal basic income, I, it definitely isn't a solution because that ends up resulting in more debt. So I think it's maybe in their eyes, it would be a solution. Like give us a guaranteed basic income and We'll leave you alone. I think that's temporary. But I think what you probably get is you get more of a, we want to take charge. How does it play out? I don't know. You get like the millennials right now are kind of hitting that low, late 20s, early 30s. Like they're starting to get into that point where they want to buy houses. And that's, this is a big demographic. Like this is bigger than, than you and I for sure. We're Gen, Gen Xers. So like this is a big demographic of people kind of coming into the system now, starting to make money. Some of them made money with crypto, starting to have more influence on the world. This is the generation that's going to, somebody in there is going to come, I don't know who it is, is going to come out and, you know, find a way and they'll just say enough. And I think you see kind of a, a massive change to, you know, the global control structure. 
because right now it's still controlled by the boomers and they want to do what they know and nothing wrong with that is they know how to print money, cut interest rates and hope that's going to stimulate the economy. But uh, when you got a thousand pound gorilla on your back, which is all the debt, no matter how much more you, you pump into, uh, into the economy, it's not going to be enough to keep going. Yeah. Well, it seems like, you know, over the years with all the disruption in all the different industries, it certainly seems like finance is up to up to the plate now, right? So if there was ever a time we're going to see a disruption in anything like that, I think now is the time. And now being the next 10 to 20 years, there'll be a disruption. And what that does to the classes of the world, who knows? But I agree, like, there could be a complete turning turnover in in you know, those classes. I don't know if it'll bridge the gap and I don't know if we'll get that coming together of classes, but uh, if there was ever a time, I think this is kind of the age of it. Yeah. So that's where you see tax, right? Tax is going to be a big one, right? So you could see them go crazy and say, if you have a net worth of over 5 million, you're going to pay tax at 90%. Yeah. I hate to see that because then, then it's just, then it's just, you know, you take everybody's motivation away and then it just becomes Atlas Shrugged. I don't know if you read that book or not, but that's that's worth a read. Since we're being controversial on this podcast today, you know, uh, that is like you take the motivation out of the leaders of the world and that's what's going to happen, right? So even though I'd love to see that divide come together, I don't think, you know, excessive taxation is the way to do, to do it because then people either just find a way around it or they just lose their motivation at all and say, screw this. I'm not, why am I going to, you know, build these massive companies and have, you know, provide all these job opportunities for all these people when I'm just going to get uh, taxed to death. Right. It makes no sense. Yeah. So I think the likelihood is, is not that kind of, we're not going to see that. I think we're more likely to see at some point, well, we've had Yellen talk about uh, universal or, or a global corporate tax, try to make a global corporate tax rate so that all the countries are the same. I don't think that'll happen. I think we'll probably get some kind of debt jubilee or they'll just do like Japan, which is bring rates down to zero and, and essentially make their debt currency. And so kind of try to wash, wash their hands of that and kind of a restart. You know, we've had Biden already talk about forgiving a bunch of student loans. So I know there's trillions of dollars in student loans in the U.S. and they'll just forgive it. So, Jeez, you know, I, could you imagine that? Yeah. I don't well, see that happening, but whatever. Well, he, I mean, he, who, knows? who knows? Yeah. So they're doing things like that. And so, but the one of the questions you did kind of hinted at was, how do you get inflation and so I think as the central banks talk about their digital currency, the central bank digital currency, that's how you get inflation, right? Is if they set up their link to your bank account, they want to put five grand in your bank account and give you 90 days to spend it. Well, that's uh, one certainty uh, that you're going to spend that money. And so if you're going to spend that money, well, at least North Americans, they're going to spend the money is you're going to get inflation. Like people are going to spend it. Yeah, they're going to spend it on whatever right i mean i hate to say things like that because there are people that really need it and they do spend it on things like food and rent and stuff like that right they need it but there is also that large group that go and spend to buy tvs and 
uh, you know, consumer goods and whatnot, right? And as the other group, they go and buy crypto with it, you know, put it, in the, <laughs> put it in the market. And those are the ones that are actually uh, benefiting right now, I guess. So, yeah. So I don't know where we started on that. I think we started talking about Kathy Wooden, and we went down rabbit there. hole, rabbit, rabbit hole, hole, man, <laughs> rabbit hole on inflation. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to our last topic of the day, which is diversification. I started off with saying, uh, we're hinting at a quote from Charlie Munger that diversification is for idiots. I don't know what you think about that, but uh, yeah, let's just start with that. Why, why, why would he say that, first of all? Yeah, I mean, they've always ran a concentrated portfolio. And it's true that history has shown that concentration results, if you're good at it, in, in better results, right? Like you have the potential to build massive wealth. If you're right, the number of Charlie Mungers in the world are one. So, and Warren Buffett are two. So I guess you can, I, I think for every one or two person, people that you can point to that have been successful at that, I can point to a hundred that haven't been. And so, you know, one of the richest guys in the world was in Brazil and I'm drawing a blank on his name right now. He was worth, I think something north of 60 billion at the top, personally worth that. And he stayed with it, didn't diversify, didn't buy other assets, oil and gas, Oil and gas started to sell off. He put more of his own capital into it, prop up the business. Again, sell off, prop up the business. And he went bankrupt, personally bankrupt. The company went bankrupt and he went personally bankrupt. And so I think that uh, there is some thinking if you're worth $60 billion, maybe take, take 10 off just in case you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of a quote, like, as far as diversification is concerned with, I think I heard somebody say, like, you should look at it depending on what stage you're at. Like, if you're trying to get rich or you're trying to stay rich, right? So that guy got rich by not being diversified, right? Being concentrated. And basically, you know, there's a lot of luck involved with the not diversifying. You got to pick a winner, right? Like, you're putting your you're putting your marker on number 17, black, you know what I mean? And that what that's the one that hit and you got rich, but that's then the time to diversify to avoid risk, right? And that's essentially what we do every day. Yeah, so I'm reading Annie Duke's book. I don't know if you know her. She's a famous poker player. So she talks about spreading around your bets, right? You know, you want to be successful, you spread them around, you take appropriate risk reward, you get a strong hand, you lever up. Like it's about making good decisions and spreading around your bets at the right time. And so I, I would kind of view it more that way. I don't think you want to own, this is why I'm against owning just a passive ETF, for example, because if you own a basket, like, a, you know, one of the robo-advisors baskets of ETFs, you probably own 5,000 stocks. Well, I think that's too many. <laughs> but if you own 100, Okay, that's probably reasonable. Like maybe that makes sense. And then you would weight your bets. Maybe you have a 3% weighting in one thing and a 0.1% weighting in something else. The 3% weighting has 5% upside. The 0.1% rating has 1,000% upside. I think about it more, more that way when I'm, when I'm thinking about diversification and kind of spreading your, spreading your bets around. And we've talked a lot about millennials during this during this episode and it'd just be interesting to see what 
more the appetite is because I think the the appetite to wait longer for returns is like that long view is getting shorter and shorter, right? And people are like, oh, they're not going to be happy with a three to five percent, right? Like, okay, well, how can I make? How can I double my money? You know, it's like that type of mentality now. So it'd be interesting to see as those come in and become more of you know, your, let's not include those in your GameStop investors and and those types of retail investors, right? The one hit wonders, but what people's views uh, will be on diversification moving forward. Yeah, so I think it'll be interesting. I mean, hopefully we can continue to educate people around how returns look like and how, you know, there is kind of a general thinking that bonds are dead. And I continue to rail against that because, you know, bonds provide certain things at certain times, you know, depending on where you are in the cycle. Like I said, like last year, the long bond was up 20%. It was the best performing major asset class and I strip Bitcoin out of that of course but like of the traditional major asset class that was the best one it's given a lot of that back this year and probably makes sense to have an allocation in portfolios again because if the market rolls over well I know everyone thinks it can't that's going to provide you a great risk reward where you have the chance to you know people look at it and they're like well 2.3% why would I buy a 30 year bond at 2.3% that's stupid but if the yield drops 50, 50.5%, you're going to make your 15, 20% upside. So there's still good places to make money in the bond market. There's still places to make money in equities. But I think you're right. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out from expectations. And as we talk, like we talk, we have millennial clients. And uh, I think it really depends a lot around what they've done. What, how they've grown up, what they think about. But if you have a client that is expecting 20% returns, which a lot of them do because they see that as a, as a potential, that is quite a different risk reward. You're not buying a balanced portfolio and getting 20%. You know, I just went through and did financial projections with a client and you know, our financial planning department pulls data from the different tools and they use like this kind of Monte Carlo simulation to generate expected returns and their present expected return for aggressive growth portfolios is 4.2%. Yeah. I mean, that's just, well, that satiates people's appetite to, for investment, right? Like, Oh, 4.2%. Maybe, but they're going to have to save a lot of money. Yeah. Like if they if they expect to retire and that's the going to be what the return profile is going to look like, they're going to need to save a pile of dough. That brings up a whole other conversation we won't get into today. But like you know, is are we a generation and the next generations going to be as good of savers as the boomers? Probably not. Right. Just that need, that instant gratification. Right. So, are they going to sell you save three million dollars for retirement? Right, so they can get that four uh, percent, probably not, right? So, some will, some will, but yeah, yeah, some will, and there is a big wealth transfer to happen, and so there is certainly if you're planning, there you could uh, the boomers if they have, if they put a good plan in place, if they have life insurance, they have a number of these things set up, there could be a good transition, but. I'd say it's fairly unlikely that they're going to save on mass like that. <laughs> Who knows? That's why I love this industry, man. 
You don't know. Every day is new. Who knows what tomorrow is going to bring? Right now, we're in the roaring 20s, so let's just live it up, Ben. Okay? I'm just trying to bike, buy a bike online. I can't even find that. So roaring 20s, I'm not sure. Okay, cool. You got anything else before we end this uh, epic episode? Oh, I think it's. Uh, I think it's been great. Lots going on. The more that I read, consensus is certain that everything's going to be great this year. So I think they're wrong. So uh, continue to uh, to have my view for what's what's expected this year, which is a rocky middle middle part of the year. So right now, though, let's make money and let's keep it going. Okay. We'll see you for uh, episode 16 next week. 